Today's Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Thank you, Ruth. Last Sunday we finished our last misquoted, this is a bonus sermon. So I got a lot of feedback. And by a lot, I mean three different people gave me feedback. That's, that's a lot for us. About three different people said, we're really enjoying this misquoted series. Um, so we're a, we're a very polite and stoic bunch, but I don't get tons of feedback. Uh, certainly don't get much negative feedback on my sermons. That's not to say I don't ever fumble or say things that are you know, a little weird or wonky. But, um, but I did get some feedback, and I thought it was in order... Uh, to do a bonus sermon. So our sermon this morning is money, comma, the root of all evil. You got to read it that way, okay? You've heard it before, haven't you? Definitely heard it said. And uh, it's a popular trope in our culture and has been for some time. And even Christians say it this way, um, and it's popular for a reason, like all of the other sort of uh, misquotes or uh, misuses of verse, verses of scripture. <clears throat> Jack Whitaker owned and operated a small construction company in West Virginia with about 100 employees in 2002 when he walked into a convenience store and bought a lottery ticket on Christmas Eve and woke up the next morning to find that he had won, at that time, the single largest jackpot in the nation ever at that point, which was $314 million. That's a whole lot of money. But if you've ever thought it would be cool to win the lottery, the tragic tale of this man's life over the next two years as a result of his winnings will disabuse you of that fantasy, cure you of that thought. Uh, if you've ever heard someone say, my life was better before the money, this guy's the poster boy for that. <clears throat> the sordid details of how his life was utterly, utterly ruined by the money is like something out of a movie or a TV special. And what's so shocking and sad is that it wasn't just his own life that was destroyed. The sudden circulation of all that cash into his small West Virginia community destroyed not just his life, but the lives of his family and dozens of neighbors and residents in his community. Within two years, he was divorced. Several family members had died from drug overdoses, including his granddaughter in that picture, with money that he had given 
And friends, several of their family friends also had died from drug overdoses. There, were, there was a wave of crime, robberies and arrests of friends and neighbors trying to capitalize off of the money he was throwing around. And when I say throwing around money, I mean it literally, you know, throwing money at people. You gotta, the story is, is mind-blowing. You know, it's said that money doesn't change who you are, it just brings out the real you. And I, I don't know if that's true or not. I would imagine, unless you have planned and prepared for an overnight influx of that kind of money, how could it not change you? I would think $314 million would change just about anyone. And for many, that's exactly what they want. They want money to change their miserable lives, or at least in their own perception. They think that money will improve their lives, that money will change their lives for the better. But the promise of quick cash can be ruinous, right? Bank robbers and Ponzi schemers, grifters and scam artists and con men and crooks all take a play out of the same book. It's the desire for a lot of money really quick. It's not patient. It's not vigilant. It wants it all right now. And of all the sayings that misquote the Bible, this saying, money is the root of all evil, feels the truest. It's not what the Bible says, but it feels true. It just feels true. Money is the root of all evil. It's not what the Bible says. But stories like that, and many, many, many countless other stories make it feel like, yeah, money is the root of all evil. Money both blesses and complicates our lives. A person dies, and once loving relatives and family duke it out in probate court for the inheritance. You may remember in Luke 12, someone came to Jesus and said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Right? I mean, it, it went back all the way into Bible times. People fought about inheritances. And Jesus said, don't get me involved in that. We, we just assume Jesus always has something to say to every circumstance. And there were some circumstances where Jesus was like, I'm not touching that one. He said, hey, who appointed me as a judge and executor between you? And he followed it up with a word, a teaching about greed. Let not greed capture your hearts. The Lord himself was like, I don't want any part of that. But it's not about the money. It's really about our relationship to money. It's not about the money. It's about our relationship to money. You know, there are a lot of people going around, running around America right now, that believe that money and wealth are inherently evil. You know what I'm talking about. They have platforms. They get on the news. And they sort of believe that all wealthy people are evil. And I would just say in a word, these are people who haven't been exposed to enough of the world and exposed to enough of the word of God to make a statement like that. They don't know enough of the Bible. 
The Bible has a positive view of wealth and wealth building. But the New Testament criticizes the rich, and this may be where the confusion comes in. Now, we just may assume in our culture, and in our culture there really isn't much of a difference, wealth and riches are the same thing. In the Bible, they're not. In the Bible, they're not. There is a different conception the Bible has of wealth and riches. In a nutshell, we could say that building wealth is about stewardship, right? It takes a long time to build wealth. It requires patience, planning, hard work, diligence, sacrifice. Proverbs 21 says, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has, which is essentially to say that wise people put something aside. They save, and fools spend everything they have. Yeah, the Bible has something to say about that. Saving and investing is wise, and spending everything you make is stupid and foolish from a biblical perspective. And Proverbs probably says more about this than any other book in the Bible. A basic premise of the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, is that we live in a cause and effect world. Make wise decisions, and generally speaking, good things happen. Someone may say, well, that, that wasn't my experience. Well, there's always exceptions. But generally speaking, you make wise decisions, and good things happen. You make foolish decisions, and bad things happen, and that is also true regarding money. And so the Bible is big. It is on personal responsibility. The Bible's big on that. But... It's always a but. It also recognizes that not every poor person is poor because of bad decisions. Some people are born into poverty. And getting ahead is not just a matter of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There are mountains of obstacles to overcome for poor people, not least of which is not having access to a whole host of connections and advantages that wealthier people have. I know people who tell me they have never had to apply for a job. What do you mean? I've always known someone who's known someone. In other words, the experience of having to like fill out applications and go from job to job, hitting the pavement. Some people have never had to experience that. Maybe that's some of you. Your dad knew someone, your mom knew someone, your uncle, you know, Uncle Richard who runs the factory has got a position, he said he can get you in. I mean, some people have never had to experience that. But for millions of people, they, they don't have that access. And so they do have to work harder. They do have more obstacles to overcome. It's like two people running you know, a 100-yard dash, one has hurdles. The one with the hurdles is just not going to finish the finish line at the same time the other person is, you know, even if they're equally matched. There's hurdles for some people, and we have to be mindful of that. Not only that, but if you didn't grow up with a father or a positive sort of role model or mother or people who knew about money, you may have never heard, and this is, this is the case, case often for poor people, they may have never heard, spend less than you earn. 
live beneath your means, save for a rainy day, invest for retirement. Now you may think, well, who needs to hear that? It's just logic, right? I never heard that growing up. Now when I heard it, I thought, well, of course that makes sense. It was almost like it was dormant in my brain and sort of like the logical mechanisms of my my world understanding, but it had not been awakened until someone said it to me. I had never heard someone say growing up or as a young man, spend less than you earn. Save for a rainy day. Put money aside for retirement. Delayed gratification. I'd never heard any of that. It wasn't part of my background. And so it was hard getting ahead financially, you know? just because I didn't have access to that, I wasn't exposed to that. Money is neither good nor evil, but our experiences are different. We all have different experiences. And being poor doesn't make a person godly and being rich doesn't make a person evil. There are godly poor people and there are godly rich people. There are wicked rich people and there are wicked poor people. So what does the Bible say about money as the root of evil? Well, let's look at the verse in its context, like we've been doing, 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 6. But with godliness, contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, there it is, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, the love of money, not money, but the love of it, is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What a verse. Maybe the most, one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. Here's a little bit about the context. Paul the Apostle is teaching Timothy, a young pastor and church planter in Ephesus, about what not to do as a pastor, and he's warning Timothy about the false teachers who use the faith as a means to get money. So in its context, Paul, if you look at sort of concentric circles of application, Paul is talking to Timothy about false teachers and false pastors, and then he spans out from there, okay? He tells Timothy, don't be like the false teachers who see the gospel, as a means of profit. And they are still with us today, the false teachers, aren't they? They pack out entire stadiums with promises of miracles and healings, and they walk away, you know, with a massive loot. They make a huge fortune in the process. Not teaching people faithfully and diligently over time what it means to follow Jesus and sacrifice, but this sort of promise of all these miracles, and they walk away richer. You know, they get rich through it. It may seem elementary, but, you know, if you've acquired 
several vacation homes, a private jet, and a Rolls Royce as a minister of the gospel, you're doing it wrong. Is it wrong to have those things? No, but you need to find a new career. That's not what the gospel ministry is all about. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. That's the context. Now, why? Why isn't that what the gospel ministry should be all about? Well, because the hallmark of godliness, Paul says, is contentment. It's a biblical virtue. It's something God wants, at the very least, those that minister to master. Because they're supposed to be examples of Christ's own humility, right? I mean, where Christ entered into the world and his context says a lot, doesn't it? He came among the poor. He left the riches of heaven and he came and lived among people who had very little. They were blue collar people, they were fishermen. They were manual laborers, they were day laborers, right? Contentment is an essential trait of Christian maturity, even if you're not a gospel minister. It's something we should all strive for, contentment. It is an essential trait of mature Christianity. And it's one of the major themes of Paul's theology. Which means it's important for anyone who names the name of Christ. So the first thing I want us to look at in this text is the folly of materialism, okay? Verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. In other words, there is no eternal advantage to material possessions. We come into this world naked, we will leave naked. Or maybe in a suit. Or a nice gown in your coffin. You've never seen a U-Haul following a hearse, have you? You cannot take any of it with you. And the point Paul is making is all of your material possessions don't mean anything in eternity. They're nice. You may pass down some family heirlooms. One of the things I've experienced in recent years is I've, I've seen as people have gotten older and they downsize their life, and I get it, right? Like, that makes sense. You know, we downsize our lives, and, you know, you may move from a house that all your kids grew up in to a smaller place and ultimately maybe into, a, like, a re- retirement community, and, like, that's fine. And you, what happens is when, when this happens, you start offloading possessions you've accumulated over the decades, And your children or loved ones may want some of it, but I have witnessed a lot of that go to waste. Just, and it saddens me because I realize that we're sort of geared in our Western world to accumulate things that will ultimately one day become just part of a, a rubble heap or the goodwill, you know? Maybe some valuables are passed down and that's okay. But Paul is saying there is no eternal advantage to any of it. Unlike the Egyptians and the pharaohs who filled the tombs and the pyramids with all of their belongings. There is a good word from our brother Job who said, naked I came into the world and naked I shall return. 
Probably informs some of Paul's theology, doesn't it? Good old Job. Amassing possessions, which you'll leave behind when you die, is ultimately folly and foolishness. You can't take it with you. It's all going to stay here and ultimately decay. So what is the remedy, Paul says in verse 8? But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So the foundation for all material contentment starts and ends with one's basic necessities. Now, when is the last time you just thanked God that you had food and clothing? Just a question. Think about it. When is the last time in your prayers you said, Father, I thank you that at the very least I have food and clothing and shelter. Everything else is just extra. I hope your heart is able to embrace that and to revel and glory in the fact that you're not starving to death because some people are. Now, global hunger has been reduced. In fact, global hunger is, there's less global hunger than there ever has been in the history of humanity. That's been proven. But being able to recognize that everything else is just extra, that the provision of clothing and food and shelter is something that should at the very basic element, make our hearts rejoice in contentment. That God is taking care of us. Do you take those things for granted? Do you just assume, well, of course I have those things. It's the next thing that I want, that, I'm, that I wish I had. You know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and I have to admit, um, it's wild that the very day after Thanksgiving is Black Friday. It's like, you know, the retailers and the people, you know, said, okay, enough of that contentment stuff. Let's get back to buying stuff and accumulating stuff. And I know all of us are saying, well, you know, Jordan, it goes on sale. We're buying stuff for other people for Christmas. But you know, and I know, right, that like a lot of us buy stuff for ourselves on those days. And statistics prove that. I think it says 67% of people who go out on Black Friday to buy gifts for other people for Christmas buy themselves stuff. And retailers know that. But the key, and this is instructive for every one of you getting ready for Thanksgiving here in just a couple weeks, you cannot be thankful unless you are content. Contentment is the key to Thanksgiving. Contentment is the essential key to being thankful. If you're not content, you can't be thankful. And sometimes that's hard to do, isn't it? Paul's remedy to materialism is contentment. And he wants us to see that the lack of contentment is the primary reason people seek riches. Now, I realize that if you, if you don't have a lot, you may say, well, that's easier for you to say, to be content. You have a lot. But Jesus doesn't make that distinction. It's not that he's telling poor people who don't have a lot, you shouldn't seek to get ahead. What he's saying is that everyone ought to be content with what they have because he realizes the havoc that lack of contentment can wreak in a person's life. 
cause them to seek riches. And so the next point in verse 9, I believe, is about wealth versus riches. And I'm going to tease out the difference here in a second. This is what he says. Paul, Paul says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I think there was a song in the 80s or something. I want to be rich. Want to be rich. You may be thinking, oh, wait, wait, how is, he, how is he going after the desire to be rich? Doesn't Proverbs talk a lot about stewarding a lot of money or building wealth? Um, <clears throat> I've thought about this long before I ever came across this sermon topic about the difference between wealth and riches. As I mentioned in the very beginning, our culture treats it the same, but I believe biblically they're different. Uh, wealth, the biblical view of wealth, requires integrity, it requires patience, and it is ultimately about a biblical trait that we might call stewardship. Wealth building is about stewardship because it takes time, patience, and wise decisions like investing and saving and giving. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. We could say a good woman, right, leads an inheritance to, his, to her children's children. That, that's not bad. It's not bad leaving money. Some people say, I'm against that. I, you know. not, that's, that's a good thing. To, to die and not leave debt to your kids, but an inheritance. It's a good thing. Riches, on the other hand, biblically speaking, and I've had to tease this out because the New Testament takes the rich to task. I mean, it is, it is tough on rich people, right? Howl, ye rich, for your miseries coming upon you. Mary in the Magnificat, when she rejoices that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, says, yes, now the rich will go away hungry, but the poor will be fed. Right? There is an imbalance. There is a kind of disparity that is ungodly in our world that the New Testament recognizes, especially when people hoard their wealth, when people use wealth as power over poor and powerless people. Riches convey greed and avarice and oppression. Why does Paul say those who desire to be rich fall into temptation? Because seeking to be rich usually involves getting money quickly. This, to me, is the biggest difference between wealth and riches. The, when buying a lottery ticket is not about wealth, it's about wanting, it's about getting money quickly. <clears throat> By any means necessary, often through ill-gotten gains. And we can think about what people do. There's a reason that the saying is get rich quick schemes, not get wealth quick schemes. Because getting rich often involves sort of, you know, 
removing the conventional obstacles for building wealth. How can I get there quickly? You know, the Bernie Madoffs of the world and the, I mean, just name it, right? The, the list goes on. Whatever I can do to get as much money as I can, as quick as I can. And the pursuit of riches has plunged many into ruin and destruction. Some people who seek riches are willing to kill for it. I always marvel at the stories of American spies who spy against their own government. You know, some of you know these stories, right? They're someone who worked for the CIA. They were an analyst, and maybe a foreign government approached them and said, you know, we'll give you, you know, $100,000 every couple months for secrets, and they did. And, you know, they get arrested, they get caught invariably, like most of them do, and they get life in prison. You know, if it was in the 50s, they'd be executed. And now we're a little bit more, you know, compassionate, but they get life in prison. And when you find out how much money it actually was, it's usually just for a few hundred thousand dollars so they could build like an in-ground pool or a room addition. But they didn't want to wait for it. It's like, oh, I get 250 grand in the next few months. We can get that pool we've always wanted. Or we can get that room addition. We'll take that vacation we've always wanted. They want it quick. They wanted it now. And the Bible says, in patience, possess ye your soul. The patient hold on to their soul. Because of the love of money, people are plunged into ruin and destruction. It's not just this love of money like I like the little green bill. It's what money can do for us that sucks us in. And Paul says that it is the love of money that is the root of many different types of evil. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving. That's an important word there, huh? The craving from money and what it can do. That some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Not a positive image, not an upbeat image, not a flowery image. It's a negative image in scripture. Not money, but the love of it is a root of all kinds of evils, which simply means that from that craving stems all types of bad things. Evil things, wicked things. Now take a moment and, and think, maybe that has happened to you. The promise of quick cash made you make foolish decisions. Has that ever happened? I'm sure some of us at some time, we made foolish investments or a foolish move because we thought this is going to yield some big money really quickly. I remember years ago in California going to an Edward Jones, and you know, Edward Jones is like located here in St. Louis. I didn't know that when I moved here, but in California I went, I was in my 20s to an Edward Jones guy, and he, he wisely conveyed investing this way. He said, look, there's, all the, there's day traders and people who try to make money. He says, but listen, he says, this is how you should think about investing. He said, it's like the redwoods. He says, you know, plant a seed and in 30 years you've got wood. I mean, that was helpful for me. 
you know, that was just helpful, wrapping my mind around that, you know. 30 years down the road, you'll have some wood, you know, but not, not right now. <clears throat> but the love of money makes people do all sorts of evil and wicked things. In Los Angeles, uh, when I was living there, uh, there was a woman who was arrested, middle-aged white lady, was going around getting homeless men on skid row to get life insurance policies, naming her as the beneficiary. And a lot of them struggle from mental illness and drug addiction. She paid them a small fee to do it. She said it was for tax purposes. They didn't know any better, and then she had them killed and collected millions. They finally caught up with her, but after she had killed about six people. I mean, she was just like a woman you'd see in the grocery store. But she had this voracious longing for riches. Murderous plot, wicked and evil. And one day she will answer as she stands before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because she wanted a Mercedes? The wisdom of God is good for us. The word of God is good for us. The commands of God are good for us. But we have this narrative, you know, from the world telling us, no, you need this. What is contentment really about? Contentment is about being able to enjoy the things you already have versus longing for the things you don't or want to have, right? Being able to look at what you have and say, Lord, thank you for this. Help me to enjoy this dusty old pair of blue jeans or whatever the case may be. Help me to, help me to rejoice in what I have without longing or feeling like I have to get the next best thing or do the next big thing. The kind of love that Paul is denouncing, the love of money, love that captures a person's heart and makes them do anything and be willing to do anything should be reserved for God only. Do you have that kind of love for God? The kind of love that has captured your heart so powerfully and deeply that you're willing to do anything for him? Right? Loving things is good. Loving something with all that you are is a good thing. But it's what we love that matters. And it starts with God. Loving him in such a way that there's nothing we won't do for him. No burden we won't bear, no length we won't go to, no sacrifice we won't make because of our love for him, not money. Listen, in closing, money isn't evil. We all need it to survive. But it is often a barometer of the condition of our hearts, isn't it? Martin Luther said the last thing in our lives usually to be sanctified is our pocketbook. We can get a lot of things in order with God before we get our money in order with God. And that includes stewardship, faithfulness, sacrificial giving to our church, all of those things. And people who love money, they won't let go of any of it. They certainly won't give sacrificially, they cling to it. 
And this is why all sorts of evils flow from the love of it. May your affection and love ever belong to God alone. Rich or poor, hungry or full, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, O God, for the admonition to be content, to embrace contentment, to recognize, O God, that our lives are godly when we rejoice in everything we have, when we're content, O God, with what you've already given us, our basic necessities, food and clothing and shelter, and recognizing that everything else is a bonus, O God. And that, Lord, you do bless us. You bless us to gain wealth, but you also command us to be merciful to the poor. Many of us don't know any poor people. But, Father, let our hearts grow with compassion and love towards those who are in need, that we wouldn't grasp and cling to what we have, but be willing to give it away, knowing, O oh God, that, Lord, you replenish, and you command us and promise us that when we give, it shall be given. May our hearts only love you that desperately. We pray these things in your Son's name, amen.